If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. At the time Jane Austen was penning her novels, what did society think about female writers? How did ill health affect Austen's career? And did people in the Regency era really spend all day gossiping about grand fortunes, illustrious estates and ruinous affairs, just like the characters in her books? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, historian and writer Dr Lizzie Rogers speaks to Lauren Good to answer your top questions about life in the age of Austen. We are talking today about all things Austen. She's an adored writer by so many and revered in the literary canon. Can we start with a bit of context? If we're talking about Austen's England, what era are we talking about? And can we also please clarify why we're talking about Austen's England specifically here rather than, say, Austen's Britain? Of course. So, while well, starting with some dates, I think, uh, most important. Um, Jane Austen was born in December 1775 and she was alive until July 1817. So, that's kind of the period we're really talking about, although she tends to really be mapped onto the Regency period. I think she's often the lens through which we see it. And the Regency officially was from 1811 to 1820, the period when the future George IV was the Prince Regent for his father, George III. So that's the kind of period that I think we normally talk about when we think of Austen. In terms of talking about England, the reason we talk about Austen's England, I think rather than a wider Austen's Britain, is because her writing all takes place in England, most memorably in Hertfordshire, Hampshire, Derbyshire, Bath, London, and the South Coast. And so I think that's why we want to specifically keep to the, that kind of locale, because that's the experiences she was writing about and giving to her characters too. And could you please, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with her, provide a potted biography of Austen before we dive into questions about the world she was living in? 
Of course. Uh, what a joy of a question to start with. Jane was born in De- on December the 16th, 1775. So Jane was born the sixth of uh, eight children to the Reverend George Austin and Cassandra Lee Austin. And she was born at Steventon in Hampshire, where her father was a cleric. And that's where she spent kind of the first two to three decades of her life. And it was a very happy childhood. She spent a brief time at school with her sister, Cassandra, who's, uh, of course, she's famous for painting the only portrait believed to be from life of um, of Jane Austen, which is in the National Portrait Gallery in London. They went to school together, but most of their schooling was done at home. Um, her father took in boarders to supplement his income from the church. And then she spent some time in Bath from 1800 when her father retired. And then what kind of follows is a little bit of some time of uncertainty and instability. And it's when she actually wrote less. She, Her father died in January 1805. And then until in 1809, when her brother, Edward Austin, offered her, her mother and her sister and their friend, Martha Lloyd, a living at what is now Jane Austen's House Museum at Chawton in Hampshire. They were kind of shunted between relatives a little bit. She didn't have much income. And that is when she goes to Chawton and she has a lot more of a stable existence. She edits a lot of the writing she'd already done. So early versions of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And she writes more and more. She begins publishing um, in 1811, Sense and Sensibility is her first novel, but she publishes anonymously. So Sense and Sensibility comes out by a lady, no name on it. And then of course, with every successive novel, it's by the author of Sense and Sensibility, by the author of Pride and Prejudice. So she could get a little bit of a following, even though her name wasn't attached to it. And then unfortunately, her health declined quite early on. She dies at the age of 41 on July 18th, 1817 in Winchester, which is where you can find her grave in Winchester Cathedral. And during this unfortunately short life of Austin's, you've just uh, mapped out for us. Could you please summarise what her world looked like generally? What were the central conventions of the society she was living in? Yes. So, I mean, Austin and her family occupied what a lot of people call the pseudo gentry. So these kind of people who are below the kind of gentry established as she had a lot of family connections and friend connections. Um, Her brother, Edward Austin, that I mentioned, was actually adopted by a wealthy childless couple. The Knight family is how he owned the Chawton estate and he owned other property too. And so she had these connections, these places. He's not the only one, but she lived a little bit more of a fluid existence. Her father had the living at Steventon, but it was only so long as uh, he worked there, so to speak. So money, they weren't dirt poor by any means, but money sometimes was a little bit more of an issue. Her and her sister Cassandra wouldn't have had large dowries, things like that. And of course, we know from reading a lot of Regency romance, things about the period, period dramas, those were important concerns. But I think she had uh, an artistically and culturally rich life, um, especially at Steventon. Her father had a library of at least 300 books and she and her brothers and her sister were encouraged to really read without guidance as well, which is kind of not semi-rare, but it's a little bit more unusual and kind of suggests why she ended up being a writer. And she wrote from being very small. If anyone has ever read any of her juvenilia, they're really interesting. I really recommend them. There's some very fun and dramatic stories about drunkards and masquerade balls and affairs and things like that. Uh, She gets a little bit more refined as we get to her novels, (laughs) but they really reflect the world she lived in where girls needed to make sure they were uh, accomplished as well as kind of thinking for themselves. 
um, she puts a lot of little jokes about society's expectations of women in her writing. But also that there, there was the very real worry about money, where people were going to live, marriage being a tool to get security and things like that which I think is really interesting because sometimes we often, we read Austin and we think about the romance of it. We don't really think about the history that she's representing to us and often a very real reality for her and her family. And you've just touched on marriage here. One of the questions we've had is, what does Austin's work tell us about approaches to marriage in this era? So it tells us a lot of very interesting things and I think also represents a wide variety of what was really concerning people during um, this early 19th century, late 18th century period, which marriage for love was becoming more common. I know there's a kind of, we talk a lot about the transactional nature of marriage, but marriage for love was becoming more common and we see that happening with a lot of her characters, but also marriage for stability. I mean, I immediately think of Charlotte Lucas and Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice that she's looking, she's a little older. She's looking, I say a little older, I think I'm now older than her. She's looking for stability and she sees that this man is offered a, comf- a comfortable living. He has a parsonage. He has a his favourite patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And things like that were really important. So although love was a concern, um, increasingly so, actually especially for people who did have an unstable income or were one of many children. That was a a real thing to think about. And especially for the upper classes as well, although there's brilliant stories about people marrying for love, like really wild affairs and things like that. Sometimes I think the buttoned up image of the Regency period is, I don't know where we kind of got it from because uh, the scandal and the gossip is brilliant. But they, uh, people, especially the upper classes who are guarding fortunes, guarding assets, really did have to think about family alliances. We see that a lot, of course, with the royal family trying to marry across households and things like that to strengthen political allegiances. And for the aristocracy, securing inheritance inheritances, securing heirs as well. And we know that's really important. And I think Jane Austen manages to reflect a lot of that in her six complete novels. There's a lot of different concerns that come into it. So love isn't, we can say love, but with a lot of caveats as well attached to it. And we've got another question from Twitter relating to what you've just said. How realistic would it have been for Darcy and Elizabeth to get together? You've spoken about Charlotte's marriage and Pride and Prejudice, and this person was wondering how common would it have been for people to marry, not necessarily between classes, but between those different levels, I suppose, of the upper class? That's a really interesting question, actually. Now, I'm not an expert on every single person who got married during this period, but I think it was reasonably likely, although, of course, I think in reality, there would have been a lot more attention paid to things like dowries and what they were bringing. Even if actually somebody wasn't necessarily bringing a dowry, a woman could be bringing uh, important connections and things like that. So that's also something to be considered. Although I don't I mean, uh, we know Mr. Darcy didn't necessarily think that the Bennett family were a great connection to have uh, based off his uh, failed first proposal. But there's some really interesting instances of people marrying between different strands of wealth, but also between 
classes as well. I always think about, and this is probably a little bit of an extreme example, but um, Emma Hamilton, she's super interesting. She basically came from nothing. Her background's very murky. She became an actress uh, and she ended up married to uh, the very wealthy collector, Sir William Hamilton. And um, she had an affair with Lord Nelson. So she was really well connected among kind of the upper echelons of British society. And although that is a very extreme example, it shows you that these boundaries could be fluid if you found yourself in the right space and place and talking to the right people. And we've just touched on Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth's marriage, and we've had quite a few questions about this union. In Pride and Prejudice, Mrs. Bennett, the notorious matchmaker, claims that Mr. Darcy has 10,000 a year. And I'm sure you were predicting this question, but what sort of annual salary would that be in today's money? So one thing that I really love doing when I'm looking at historic figures is the National Archive has a really cool currency converter and they not only tell you kind of what it's worth on the face of it in today's money, but also what it's worth in terms of assets as well, which I think is always super interesting. And there's different ways you can look at it. So I think if you literally look at kind of just inflation. Mr. Darcy's wealth isn't quite a million pounds a year. But if you look at it in terms of the assets that he owned and things like that and kind of calculate it, um, I am not a mathematician, I will confess. But I read a really interesting article that I think the research was in the Telegraph that his money is actually equivalent to about 12 million a year, which is a lot, isn't it? That's um, a lot. (laughs) I I remember the first time I ever read Pride and Prejudice, I think I was about 10. So of course, £10,000 to me felt like like lottery winning. Um, And then (laughs) as I got older and got more into historical research, I was like, oh, well, it is a lot of money. I mean, I would love an extra £10,000 a year, but it doesn't sound all that much. And then when I read how they'd worked it out and they'd looked at kind of the estimation of the properties and like what Pemberley would it be equivalent to and what that would yield and rents and things like that. I can see why Mrs. Bennett thought he was quite such a catch at 12 million a year. I think I can too. Yes. (laughs) And we've got another question about this instance of Mrs. Bennett's knowledge. And somebody also on Twitter has asked, um, were people aware of others' incomes? You know, is this a realistic portrayal from Austin? And if people were aware, how would rumours like this have spread? So I think people were reasonably aware. They didn't know, obviously, everything that people had in terms of assets. But particularly, I mean, I'm thinking of other kind of pop culture references we get to the Regency at the moment. So Bridgerton's a big one. And the kind of main thread in that is scandal sheets and gossip. And I think things like that would have really helped talk about the wealth people had. And people would have known like the properties that they publicly claim to own and things like that. I mean, it also rises to instances where people think others have a lot of money and secretly they're squirreling it away. We see that in Persuasion where Sir Walter Elliot has basically, he's a spendthrift and he spent all of the money that they have at Kellynch Hall. So they're led to um, renting it out, but he keeps resting on the fact he's a baronet. So it doesn't matter. So I think a lot of it was in terms of what people told, rumours and things like that, and also knowledge of land people owned as well. This is a lot of people took wealth from the land back then. And clearly, Austin's work covers quite a narrow section of the society she was living in. I was wondering whether you could explain what life for the lower classes would have been at this time that we don't necessarily see in her literature. Yeah, she definitely does pinpoint. I think a lot of her writing is about women who are almost 
in a similar situation to her or a little bit higher because that's what she knew and circulated within. I think one of the we get some very tiny snippets, one of them being Mansfield Park, uh, Fanny Price's family. She gets adopted by the wealthy Bertram family. We get to briefly go to Portsmouth and, and she's really not used to what they lived in. Um, and there's so many children crammed into a tiny, tiny house. And we also see a little bit in Emma. We get Harriet Smith, who has a kind of, a, uh, she's of murky parentage and she has a donor pay for a girls' school. So we we don't see too much of it. But for the lower classes, I think it would have been a little less squeaky clean as I think we um, we see bits in Austin. But I think no less joyful, it would have been a lot more hard work, kind of people working the land, making money in different ways. Women in particular would have, um, it would have been a lot more acceptable for them to make their own money and have a profession. That isn't saying that I it depends what that profession was, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. But it wouldn't have been kind of as much, I mean, I'm not saying Austin's life was all fun and games. I don't think it was at all. And I think she occupied an interesting spot between being able to respectably make her own income and having a comfortable existence. But for the um, lower classes, it would have been a lot less fun and games, but also a lot of kind of socialising, less um, restrictions on priority and things like that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Bath was an interesting period for her, I think. One of highs and lows, I would say. I think she probably had a a complicated relationship with Bath because of some of the great sadnesses in her life happened while she was mainly living there. And I think, I mean, she was a creative person and her creative output was very little, which I think is probably one of the best indicators we could use. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You were just talking then about the interesting spot that Austin occupied in the class system. And you talked earlier about the fluidity of her life. Austin was born a clergyman's daughter, but she did go on to experience some financial success in her literary career. And in relation to what you've just answered, how do you think her own experiences of class manifested in her books? I think I've mentioned quite a bit now the instability. I think that really materialises in her work. You can really see some of the women, although they live a comfortable existence, they are sometimes on the outside looking in a little bit. For the Bennets, it's a really real worry that there's there's no son to take care of their five daughters. It's in, uh, The estate's entailed away to a distant cousin who turns out to be a very interesting relation in the form of Mr. Collins. And also we see that almost a little bit more explicitly in Sense and Sensibility when at the beginning Mr Dashwood passes away and it means that his son from his first marriage comes and is now heir to the park and his wife is very entitled and believes that the younger his younger sisters or younger half-sisters and Mrs Dashwood shouldn't be able to occupy it so they end up taking up on the kindness of um, another relative and moving away. So I think it does represent some of the some of these instabilities that she was aware of. I mean, she spent 
a lot of time um, living with um, the families of some of her brothers and things like that, which gave her a lot of insight into a lot of different things. Her brothers had some really interesting professions. Two of them were in the Navy. One of them I mentioned earlier, Edward, was adopted by a wealthy childless couple. So he became a landowner. Her Supposedly her favourite brother, Henry, he had quite a few different career changes. At one point he was a banker and then he lost a lot of money. Um, and he then becomes a clergyman too. And two of her brothers run a literary magazine at one point as well. So she's kind of got an insight into a lot of different things through this network and also not just her family, but friends that she makes within kind of the neighborhood of Steventon as well and other female friends she made too. There's some really interesting people that she was connected with that I think you can really sit and read into who you think are the inspiration for different characters in her different novels and the different storylines. But because of this fluid space she occupied, she was able to see a lot of different things um, and exist in a lot of different spaces, um, which I think is what we get through her six full novels. And you've mentioned there of, you know, this idea of her characters looking from the outside in. We see this happening in dances throughout the novels. And we have a question from Marie from Twitter that's asked, other than attending these dances and events, what else would the higher classes have done for entertainment? So there's lots of different things. And it also depended on where you lived as well. So if you lived in somewhere like London or Bath, there would have been a lot more options available to you. This is really a period, especially leading off from the 18th century into the 19th, when um, leisure and pleasure and kind of in public spaces is really developed. So we have the theatre, the opera, they really expand, especially in London. We have pleasure gardens too, exhibitions and things like that. There's a lovely passage in one of Jane Austen's letters where she talks about going to stay in London with her brother Henry and and it's after um, she's written Pride and Prejudice and she talks about going to, I think it's three different exhibitions. One of them is um, Sir Joshua Reynolds' exhibition and she talks about going to look at portraits and trying to find the likenesses of her characters. She's trying to find a Jane Bennett, a Lizzie Bennett, uh, a Mr. Darcy, a Mr. Bingley, which is one of my favourite things I've read that she's written because I just think it shows to her own enthusiasm for her work, but also from the point of view of what we're talking about now, a great insight into some of the things that people would have done during this time for enjoyment. And we will caveat slightly to the broader theme of gender and women in Austen's literature. We've had, again, quite a few questions on this topic. And uh, on Instagram, Jess Hughes has asked, you know, you've talked a bit about Austen's movements, but what was the state of play with women's rights generally in this era? Well, so it's before women get the vote, or I should say some women begin to get the vote. In fact, Austin dies 100 years before that happens. Women's rights are very interesting during this period, I think. And it's one of the things that when I've been doing research, um, my research background is mainly in women's education and the country house. So it's something I'm always interested in. And actually, within Austin's lifetime, we have the publication of Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. That was 17 and so lots more people are writing about women's rights um, during this period. It all comes out of the intellectual period we call the Enlightenment, which roughly spans the 18th century. And a lot more people are thinking about women, how they know things, what could they know, how could they participate in society, which are a lot of really, really interesting questions to ask. And of course, a lot of people have very interesting opinions about it. And there are too many interesting things to say about that to fit into this podcast. But I think 
the really important thing is this proliferation of writings about women and some of them are so interesting and and some of them really relate to what we understand today I don't think it's any mystery why somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft is still kind of beheld as a really important figure in the history of women's writing because she's fundamentally asking for equality and for women to realize that they need equality and have an equal standpoint so I think it's really interesting um, in terms of looking at Jane Austen's life mapped onto this period of history it's a really interesting 41 years um, in the development of these things. And you discussed earlier about Austen writing anonymously. Louis from Instagram has asked, at the time, were female writers socially accepted and respected? That's a really interesting question. And I think it depends on what circles they're running in. But actually, there are a lot of really interesting female writers. I just mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft, but Austin herself was a big fan of Frances Burney. You can actually find her name in one of the subscriber lists to one of her novels, which is really nice. She's a big fan of Anne Radcliffe as well. And to somebody like Jane Austen, who had kind of artistic and creative ambitions in her family, they really respected women writers. Other circles, not so. But one thing I think is really important mentioning is actually within the late 18th century there's a circle of women called the blue stockings and they included writers artists thinkers and they were led by an aristocratic woman called Elizabeth Montague and they were really celebrated of course as with any figure there was controversy about women of course taking the lead intellectually but they were really celebrated and actually there was a group portrait painted by a man called uh, Richard Samuel who it was called the nine living muses it has a much longer title but that's generally what it went by the nine living muses of Great Britain and it really celebrated these women for their intellectual achievements and some of them were writers in that and um, I think that's kind of a nice indication of actually some the insight to what people were thinking at the time. Okay, so we've got a question on Austen's literature itself, and that is when you dig beneath the more conventional, I suppose, romance plots in Austen's work, there's a lot of satire hidden between the lines. I know you've touched on this before. Is this reflective of a wider satirical culture in literature at the time? That's a really, really interesting question. I think, yes, this period in terms of satire is super super interesting the best example I can kind of give actually is if anyone's seen the recently film Mr Malcolm's List and they have a satirical print that is made of one of the main women um, Julia Thistlethwaite and the kind of title character Mr Malcolm that jokes about failed I I don't want to use the word date but effectively a date that they went on to the theatre and that really gives a great insight into how much satire was part of culture during this period in various forms, in visual forms, in literary forms and things like that, which is why we get so much of it in Jane Austen's writing. And I think what I really love about this is I feel like I discover more things every time I read her novels, especially with doing different parcels of research that kind of connect. I mean, one of my favourite things is her talking about women's education and accomplishment in the novel and I think it really reflects these conversations at the time that talk about how women should be super accomplished and they should be able to sew and dance and sing in Pride and Prejudice 
And she's like listening to this conversation between Caroline Bingley and Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley. And Mr. Bingley, of course, has been very kind of positive about everything because he's always positive about everything. And then Mr. Darcy said, oh, she, a woman needs all of these things and she should also expand her mind by extensive reading. And Elizabeth Bennett looks up and she says, how do you know half a dozen women uh, that you know, are so-called accomplished. I don't know how you know any. And I think that's such a, it's almost on the nose, but it's a brilliant kind of insight into what she thought about all these didactic texts circulating, telling you how a woman should be. And also potentially gives insight into what she was reading about women's place in society too, and kind of the concerns they should have. So you've just discussed there about Austen's work providing insight and in Persuasion, Anne Elliot finds Bath both oppressive and miserable. And it has been said that this fictional portrayal reflected Austen's own views of the city. Is there any truth in this? I think it's funny now because if you visit Bath, it's very much almost a Jane Austen city. It's a Roman city and it's a Jane Austen city. It's, I mean, it's how it's memorialised in my mind as well. I'm part of the perpetrators of that. But actually, based stuff kind of, especially her writing output during this period, it wasn't the happiest period of her life being in Bath. She'd been taken away from Steventon where she'd lived for the first roughly 25 years of her life when her father had retired and then her father dies while they're in Bath. And I think it is a portrayal of kind of some of the contradictions she found in Bath society. She writes a lot before they go and she writes a lot when they settle at Chawton in 1809. So I think it shows kind of Bath was an interesting period for her, I think. One of highs and lows, I would say. I think she probably had a, a complicated relationship with Bath because of some of the great sadnesses in her life happened while she was mainly living there. And I think, I mean, she was a creative person and her creative output was very little, which I think is probably one of the best indicators we could use. And you've just discussed there the highs and lows of Austen's life. And we know that she often suffered from ill health. She unfortunately died very young. How do you think this affected her writing? I think it probably gave her a lot of time to write because of her ill health or because of kind of these periods of not being able to do too much but I wonder if it also and this is me personally speculating I wonder if it also gave her kind of a renewed sense of what she wanted to do I guess if you're um if you're somebody who is very subject to ill health a lot of the time especially during this period because there aren't the same kind of medical awarenesses that we have now it's widely believed that one of the things she may have passed away from is Addison's disease which now is a lot more treatable and is a kind of livable condition but of course nobody really knew what was wrong with her back then we don't have the same diagnoses I think it probably gave her a lot more of an awareness of what she wanted to do and what she wanted to achieve but also perhaps her own limitations physically as well and I say that and that is my speculation that isn't anything I've gleaned from her letters but I think it's interesting to think about in terms of the fact that she suffered from ill health and she also puts that in some of her novels as well although often with the comics spin. We can never fail to think of uh, Mrs. Bennett with her ill health and her nerves and her hypochondria, which I think is kind of interesting. It shows that she had a positivity about it a little bit as well. And another novel of Austen's that I'm not sure we've discussed yet is Emma, and it was dedicated to the Prince Regent. And Austen at the time expressed her dislike, even hatred of him in a letter. So can you tell us anything about what Austen's relationship with royalty was like? 
Um, that's a really interesting question and something that always amuses me as well because her dedication to the Prince region on the face of it if you read it without any knowledge that she really strongly disliked him it sounds kind of a little bit muted but respectable but if you when you know it comes across as very very minimalistic I would say in her praise of him so the reason she disliked the Prince Regent so much was she wrote that she supported his wife, Caroline of Brunswick, against him. He treated her very badly, mainly because he'd secretly married somebody else, an actress called Maria Fitzherbert, and his parents didn't know. And they made him have a proper royal marriage. And he treated her very badly. They had one child that came out of it. And this is why Jane Austen disliked him so much on the face of it. As for wider royalty, I'm not so sure. I think it's more directed at the Prince Regent. And uh, I mean, he has an interesting relationship through history and a lot of uh, satirical prints were directed at him. I think he was an interesting character, to say the least. And especially, I can imagine somebody with as kind of bright thinking as Jane Austen perhaps would not have taken it too well, that it was gently suggested, or maybe not even gently suggested, that she might want to dedicate Emma to him. No uh, no choice really in the matter. She can't really say no to that. So she probably didn't enjoy that too much either, that she was effectively forced into doing it. I think it says a lot about Austin's personality, doesn't it? I think so. I think, I think yeah, I think it's uh, when you read beneath it a little bit, it gives a good insight into her character and how kind of witty and single-minded she was. <laughs> And finally, for my last question, Jane Austen is still read and enjoyed so much today. I'd love to know what it is, in your opinion, about Austen's work that makes it so timeless. Again, that is such a great question. And one that I find myself whenever I'm writing about Austen or thinking about Austen, which is a lot, grappling with, because like I said at the beginning, it's almost like the Regency period itself has become something that we see through the eyes of Jane Austen. And not just through the eyes of Jane Austen, the eye, through the lens of how we portray her now, through period drama, so many things hark back to references to do with Jane Austen, to the point now that they even reference things that have referenced Jane Austen, and we all culturally know what they are. I'm thinking about kind of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. We have Colin Firth memorably jumping in the lake, and then in Bridgerton, they reference that by having Anthony Bridgerton do that. And we recognize that as a Jane Austen reference, but it's it's not a Jane Austen reference. It's kind of those layers we've built, which just shows her enduring popularity. And I think what it is about her writing that's so timeless is the way that I read something recently that said her stories were evergreen and that they can be kind of re-examined and pulled apart. And I think it's true. I think in some, she didn't really talk about people's appearances all that much. She didn't really talk about objects and things. She talked about places and people's feelings and conversations a lot. And I think through even though she only published six full novels, there's lots of material in there that I think still speaks to people and still speaks to things we understand today. Like we talked a little bit about women's education and accomplishment. We talked about marriage, kind of happiness in people's situations. And I think those are things that span time and space. And it's one of the reasons why I think there's such a big culture in particular of um, like it's a whole literary genre is Jane Austen retellings. And one of my favorite things to read are these retellings because I think they're so creative and wonderful and they span different cultures. They show kind of the resonance of these storylines and how they fit with different people's lives. And I think that's why we keep returning to her because 
I mean, you can get so much and you can read so much more each time, which is amazing, really, when you think of how little was published and she had a relatively short life. Yeah, I I mean, I I love her. So I will always argue for her enduring popularity. And it's my period of history. So I always reference back to her. But I think there is something, I think it's that voice that we just talked about, the personality that kind of really resonates with people. And the fact she kind of wrote about people she knew and their relationships. Um, I think it's a really good insight into people, personality and conversation that um, we still love now. That was Dr Lizzie Rogers, a historian specialising in women and historic houses in the 18th and early 19th centuries. You can read Lizzie's thoughts on Netflix's 2022 adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion on our website, historyextra.com. Just type in Persuasion to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 